When's the last time you saw God bring something good out of a messy situation? And we get in those messy situations, we can often wonder, well, why did God allow this to happen? Why, why now? I mean, it's never really a good time for a messy situation uh, to happen, right? It could be a small, messy situation, just like your car not starting when you get up for work. It could be a messier situation, just having a, a hard time emotionally, having a hard time relationally, a dry time spiritually. Sometimes we find ourselves in messy situations because of our own sin, folly, poor choices that we, we make. And we may wonder, what, what good could God possibly bring out of this? Well, Genesis is a wonderful book for us to see time and time again the mess that God's people make and God's faithfulness to His promises, that He is sovereign over all the fears and the failures and the flaws of His people to bring really good things out of messy situations. You know, when I asked myself that question, uh, God bringing something good out of a messy situation, my mind was immediately drawn to two years ago this week. Uh, I, I, sometimes you have really good memories on your phone when those, those photos from two years ago popped up. Sometimes they pop up and you're like, ooh, oh, that just makes me feel what I felt back in the moment. Two years ago, we were not meeting as a church, the beginning of COVID, eight weeks where we, we weren't doing anything but kind of in our homes and on our properties. It was a crazy time in life. Seeing that memory pop on my phone, those feelings were stirred up of when life kind of came to a, a screeching halt. Saw the picture of my family on a Sunday morning in our living room doing Sunday morning devotions, kind of the, the messages we'd tape here and send out to you, those YouTube clips of songs. I would try to make the best of it, but it was a, a difficult time. From eight Sundays of not meeting to 22 Sundays meeting out of the backfield to coming back inside with two services at 50% capacity. Though it was a difficult time and an unusual time, by God's grace, it was a fruitful time. The Lord grew us spiritually during that time. I think the Lord reminded us of the joy that it is to meet together. Numerically, our church grew during that time, which was surprising to a lot of us. God was at work the whole time that a, a difficult season by His grace was also a, a fruitful season. Well, I wonder what those stories are in your life. If you can look back and recount testimonies of God's grace that in messy times and situations, God was at work the whole time bringing about good. You know, throughout the Bible, we see story of God's people suffering and sometimes even making a mess themselves and suffering because of their sin. And we also see God at work the whole time, working for His glory, working for the good of His people and for the fulfillment of His promises. That's what we see this morning as we spend time in Genesis chapter 29. As we look at Jacob on his journey away from the promised land. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 29. We're going to be in verses 1 through 30 this morning. If you want to use the Pew Bible in front of you, take that Pew Bible, use it this morning. Turn to page 23 in the Pew Bible, Genesis 29, verses 1 through 30, page 23. And if you've come this morning and you don't own a Bible, go ahead and use that Bible during the service, but then take that Bible home with you. That's our gift to you. We'd love for you to read that. We'd love to meet you and be able to connect with you and uh, connect you with someone here to read the Bible if you'd like. Come see me down at this door afterwards or go to the guest tent at the top of the ramp on the way out. We'd love to talk more with you. Let's read, and I'm going to read actually through all of Genesis, uh, chapter 29, verses 1 through 30 as we begin our time. 
Then Jacob went on his journey and came to the land of the people of the east. As he looked, he saw a well in the field, and behold, three flocks of sheep lying beside it, for out of that well the flocks were watered. The stone of the well's mouth was large, and when all the flocks were gathered there, the shepherds would roll the stone from the mouth of the well and water the sheep and put the stone back in its place over the mouth of the well. Jacob said to them, My brothers, where do you come from? They said, We are from Haran. He said to them, Do you know Laban, this son of Nahor? They said, We know him. He said to them, Is it well with him? They said, It is well. And see, Rachel, his daughter, is coming with the sheep. He said, Behold, it is still high day. It's not time for the livestock to be gathered together. Water the sheep and go, pasture them. But they said, We cannot, and so all the flocks are gathered together, and the stone is rolled from the mouth of the well. Then we water the sheep. While he was still speaking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. Now as soon as Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, Jacob came near and rolled the stone from the well's mouth and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and wept aloud. And Jacob told Rachel that he was her father's kinsman and that he was Rebekah's son. And she ran and told her father. As soon as Laban heard the news about Jacob, his sister's son, he ran to meet him and embraced him and kissed him and brought him to his house. Jacob told Laban all these things. And Laban said to him, Surely you are my bone and my flesh. And he stayed with him a month. Then Laban said to Jacob, Because you are my kinsman, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me, what shall your wages be? Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. Jacob loved Rachel, and he said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban said, it's better that I, I give her to you than that I should give her to any other man. Stay with me. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. Then Jacob said to Laban, Give me my wife that I may go into her, for my time is completed. So Laban gathered together all the people of the place and made a feast. But in the evening he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob, and he went into her. Laban gave his female servant Zilpah to his daughter Leah to be her servant. In the morning, behold, it was Leah. And Jacob said to Laban, What is this you have done to me? Did I not serve with you for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? Laban said, It is not so done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Complete the week of this one, and we will give you the other also in return for serving me another seven years. Jacob did so and completed her week. Then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife. Laban gave his female servant Bilhah to his daughter Rachel to be her servant. So Jacob went into Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah and served Laban for another seven years. Well, as we make our way through this chapter this morning, the main idea of what I want us to see in this passage is this. If you're taking notes, the main idea, our God is always at work. Therefore, 
let us persevere in obedience. Our God is always at work. Therefore, let us persevere in obedience. We're going to take this chapter really in in two parts, and I want us to see two scenes that will take us through this story. The first scene is in verses 1 through 14. Scene 1, providence and prayerlessness. Providence and prayerlessness. Well, Jacob, he sets off from Bethel with confidence. That's what we saw at the end of chapter 28, that God promised to be with Jacob. He promised a blessing upon Jacob that he would keep him and never leave him, that God would be with him and return him back to the promised land. And so Jacob was filled with confidence that would come from God. He he took off from there and continued on about his journey. God's promise, God's protection with him. Jacob journeyed to the east. We've seen in the book of Genesis, heading to the east often meant trouble. Heading to the east was heading away from God's presence and promises. Well, he's journeying to the land of Abraham's family in Nahor. He's there to find a wife because his parents, Isaac and Rebekah, did not want him to marry from the local women there in the land of Canaan. He was not to marry a descendant of Cain. He was not to marry a descendant from Ishmael. So he went back to his father's land, the land of his father's relatives, to marry someone who would be a descendant from the blessed line, the line of, of Shem. Shows up there, he's, he's looking for a wife, and that's what we see here, kind of a, another marriage story in Genesis. It sounds really familiar to what we read in Genesis chapter 24. And I think one way to read chapter 29 is to look back on chapter 24 and to compare and to contrast what happened there in 24 with Abraham's servant being sent back to the same land. And look at Jacob's story. In chapter 24, the servant, he ended up at a well. And when he ended up at that well, he saw Rebekah, who was Laban's sister. Here in chapter 29, Jacob comes to a well, and he, see, he sees Rachel, Laban's daughter. Now, in both stories, the men are taken back to meet the family, and out runs Laban to greet them. That happens in both chapters. And he plays a negotiation in both stories for the bride price. Now, the stories have noted similarities, but let's not miss out on the differences. And I think the one that stands out the most is the prayerlessness in chapter 29. We don't see Jacob praying. He doesn't pray for guidance. He doesn't pray and thank the Lord. And the way that the narrator tells the story of Genesis chapter 29, it paints a picture of Jacob relying on himself. So consider this. God had promised to be with him, to protect him, to to keep him, to return him back to the promised land. Jacob had those promises, and he went out in confidence, but it doesn't seem to be that his confidence grew in the Lord. It seems like he grew confident in himself. Let this be a lesson for us as Christians. We have every reason to be confident in God and His character and His promises. We need to be confident. It's a good thing to pray, Lord, help us to grow in our confidence. You are with us. Far too often we forget that. Far too often we live like you're not with us. And sometimes that can look like you're kind of crippled and can't make the next decision and can't move on in life. But sometimes it just looks like you're very capable. I've got this. I can make decisions. I can provide for myself. I can choose the path in my life that will end up best for me. Let us consider that folly, that failure as we make our way 
through this passage. In this scene, we, we see God's providence. We see that God is at work, and we see that Jacob's not. He's prayerless. I remember how we've been talking about God's providence. So, so simply put, God's providence, it combines two central truths about God. God is good, and God is in control. We see that throughout this story. People aren't acting good in the story. They're not doing good things. There's a lot that we should take away from this story that is not commended, that rather should be condemned. But the whole time, there's a story of what God's doing. He's good. He's in control. His plans are being accomplished. No one can stop His promises from being fulfilled. So let's consider that theme as we make our way through this story. Now, when Jacob arrives at the well, maybe even the very same well that Abraham's servant arrived at in chapter 24, there's a bunch of shepherds hanging out there. And even the, the interaction that Jacob has with them is kind of like, what are you doing? It's almost like he's kind of ordering them, bossing them around. Remember, Jacob's the foreigner. Jacob's new to the scene, and he's kind of giving directions and asking, kind of questioning them as to what they're doing. Now, from what we read in verse 3, it was a custom to wait until all the flocks had arrived. So they were kind of lined up. They were waiting for all the flocks to arrive before they would water any flocks. So there's almost like a line there. Once all the shepherds would arrive together, they would take the stone that covered the mouth of the well, a stone that was there to protect their water source, a very valuable source. They together would remove that stone and then kind of in line water the flocks. Jacob, see him showing up here, he just kind of shows up and takes control of the scene. Now contrast what we see here with what we saw back in chapter 24. Do you remember what Abraham's servant did? When he first came up to the well, he paused and he prayed. He prayed for guidance. We don't see that here with Jacob. Throughout the story, he acts in a way that's impulsive. He doesn't stop and pray and ask God for guidance. He, he springs into action when he sees Rachel, even with a disregard for the local custom. Again, in an impulsive act, he removes the stone all by himself. Apparently, the dude could lift some weight, right? He didn't need to wait on the other shepherds. He didn't need their help. And a, a show of his strength, jump down in the water, remove that stone from the source of the well. Then comes an impulsive kiss, right? Dude doesn't wait. It's like, get right after it. Now, now likely, though, this was probably a familial kiss of affection rather than a romantic kiss. But he just kind of just jumps into the water, takes action, removes the stone, waters the sheep there, kind of cuts everyone else in line. He's just kind of moving and shaking, kind of doing his thing, calling the shots. And a difference here again from chapter 24, when he meets Rachel, there is no prayer of thanks to God. The servant is, is thanking God back in chapter 24, thanking God for his direction, attuned to God's leadership, aware of God's presence and his, presence and his providence guiding him, but Jacob doesn't seem to be attuned there. Now, Jacob, he, he wept aloud. At this point in the story, it might be that he was more excited about finding Laban even than he was about meeting Rachel. We see later kind of his affection and attraction to Rachel, but it seems like maybe even immediately he's just excited all this way, all this journey and travel. He found Laban. Here I am, the end of my, my journey. And he wept aloud, but nothing directed to the Lord in prayer. 
Now, when Rachel took Jacob back to Laban, a family reunion breaks out. And from what we learned of Laban in chapter 24, he was an opportunist. He liked a good deal. He profited a lot from Abram's servant who came and brought him lots of, of riches. Just like he did in chapter 24 with Abraham's servant, when he came, he comes running out to meet Jacob. They embrace, they share a family kiss, and Laban welcomes him in, exclaiming in verse 14, Surely you are my bone and my flesh. Like Adam's words back in the beginning of Genesis, Laban recognizes their close ties. Now, just like in chapter 24, God was clearly at work. His invisible hand at work clearly, guiding Jacob to Laban. Again, Jacob was traveling by himself, and he just so happens to be at the right place at the right time to meet Rachel and be taken back to Laban. No, none of that's coincidence. It's all God at work. His providential plans unfolding. And again, in this story, we see that God was at work, but Jacob was not. Though God had promised to be with them, Jacob was relying on himself. Well, I wonder how often that's the case with you, Christian. Through Christ, the presence of God right there with you, guarding you, keeping you, guiding you, everything that you have, you've received, even the things that you may be tempted to think you worked really hard for, who gave you the strength to work that hard, who got you out of bed, who has sustained your life, what do we have that we have not received? Well, brother and sister, we know that God is always at work. The question is, are we? Are we giving ourselves to, to works of, of faith? You see, Jacob received promises, and they were promises that he could exercise by faith. God's with you. So pray and acknowledge His presence. Thank Him for His presence. Seek out His presence. God promised Jacob to lead him back safely to the promised land. So pray and ask God for that guidance and for that help. Don't presume upon the grace of the Lord. Exercise trust in the grace of the Lord by coming and praying to God. Well, if a narrator was telling the story of your life, how often would we read about prayerlessness? It's easy to think, like, what's wrong with Jacob? Come on, man. Like, yeah, I mean, like the Lord met you. You had this awesome dream with a ladder. Like, what more do you need? But what about the story of our lives? If somebody were to narrate our lives, would we be saying, come on, man? Yeah, like, likely so. Now, how often do we go about life functioning as if we're autonomous and independent, relying on our own strength and our own wisdom? That, that may seem like a life where we're in control, but at the end of the day, it, it just brings pain. There's freedom in submitting to God's wisdom. There's freedom in submitting to His plan. There's freedom in acknowledging that He's in control. There's freedom in seeking His guidance and in giving Him thanks. Well, Christian, I, I wonder, how often do you pray and ask God for guidance? How many days do you go without thanking God apart from a brief prayer before you eat dinner, which is a good thing to do? We should pray and give God thanks for it. It's a good tradition to do, but is our prayers of thanksgiving, is that the sum total of them, or is that just kind of one amongst many throughout our day? God is always at work, but are we? His labors never cease. How quickly ours are neglected. 
You see, what it means to grow in our faith is to be more attuned to God's work. And I think our prayer lives, they they both reveal our faith in God, but also giving ourselves to prayer more like we try to do on Sunday morning, which by the way, it's like if you look back this past week and think, yeah, this week has been prayerless. We don't want that to be true when you leave this worship service. In fact, we all got to confess sin together this morning. We all got to lift up requests to God together this morning. It's just one of the the benefits and values of meeting together as a local church, the spiritual benefits that God would use this time to renew our minds and renew our practice in prayer, that it wouldn't be true by God's grace that this week might be prayerless as, as well. You see, giving ourselves to prayer, it helps us grow in trusting God. Well, brother and sister, I think a positive takeaway from this is, is our lives, a good practice, take time to recognize God's work in your life. A great way to do that is just to lift up prayers of thanksgiving. Take time to recognize God's work in your life. And first and foremost, go all the way back to the cross and the empty tomb, to the most important work that's ever been done on the face of the earth. Remember God's work in Christ. The finished work of Jesus Christ dying on the cross is a motivation for Christians to persevere in obedience. That's how the Apostle Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14. In 2 Corinthians 5, he's going through his motivation for ministry. And he first mentions the fear of the Lord, that he's going to stand to give an account to the Lord. But then he mentions in verse 14 that the love of Christ is a compelling motivation in his ministry. Verse 14 says, for the love of Christ controls us because we've concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. As we remember the finished work of Christ, as we remember God's love and his kindness toward us in Jesus, That is a motivating force for Christians to live not for ourselves, but for Him who died for us and was raised, to live for Jesus and for His glory. I think when we look at this story, again, the question is not, is God at work? Of course He is. We need to be reminded of that. Be reminded of the gospel. Start all the way back at the the cross and the empty tomb. Be reminded of your testimony of salvation, your conversion. God's grace in saving you. His gracious pursuit of your life. You were not on a path seeking Him, but rather He was seeking you. And how freeing it is to be reminded of that. And then think of all the ways that God's blessed you spiritually. All the ways that He's blessed you materially. What do you have that you did not receive? Brothers and sisters, as we look back and are reminded of God's work, it is a motivating force to persevere in obeying God. Well, the second scene in this section is in verses 15 through 30. Scene number two, deception and discipline. Scene two, verses 15 through 30, deception and discipline. Laban, he quickly gets on with a business deal. Jacob's been serving him for a month. And in verse 15, Laban wants to know the price. What's Jacob's price for his labor? And in verse 16, Moses points to Laban's other daughter, Leah. So Rachel's older sister. And we get the detail that that Leah wasn't as pretty as Rachel. Now, whatever her eyes were weak means, 
Whether that's referring to poor eyesight or a lack of beauty, I think it's, it's probably the latter, a lack of beauty, because immediately it's contrasted with Rachel's physical beauty. Whatever that means there, though, we see that Jacob noticed the physical beauty of Rachel. Now, remember what stood out back in chapter 24 about Rebekah. While she was mentioned as being very attractive in appearance, she was far more than that. What we saw back there was a woman of character. She showed hospitality and kindness to a stranger, to Abraham's servant, and gave herself to kind of the sweaty, hard work of watering his whole flock. It was a picture of of character that that caught the eye of Abraham's servant. Well, in chapter 29, the only detail we get about Jacob's attraction to Rachel is her physical beauty, which really fits right in with what we see of Jacob in this chapter, that he wasn't spiritually attuned to what God was doing. We get the picture of he sees a pretty woman, and he wants her. Impulsively, he moves on that. Well, just like in chapter 24, some negotiations begin with Laban. So in this culture and time, there was normally a practice of a a dowry or a, a bride price. And Laban, he's probably likely already learned over the course of a month that Jacob's broke. He doesn't have anything with him. He doesn't have anything to offer. He doesn't have, it won't be a lucrative deal like what he experienced with the servant of, of Abraham. So Jacob, having nothing to offer in riches, makes an offer of labor in verse 18. His offer, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. Now, from what I read this week, that was a really high offer. Again, you don't usually come in with like the high offer first. He came in with a really high offer. So the normal bride price at that time would have been around 15 to 20 shekels. Later on in Deuteronomy chapter 22, verse 29, we see in the law there, a maximum bride price set at 50 shekels. Now, Jacob did not have that kind of bank. He didn't have those, those shekels on him. So he, he offers to be an indentured servant. I'll, I'll take on this debt. I'll kind of work to pay off this debt to Laban. And again, from my study this week, the going rate of pay for a shepherd in that time would likely have been around 10 shekels a year. So it should have taken about a little over two years to pay off the work to marry Rachel. Why then does he offer seven years and not two? We're not sure. Maybe he just wants to make such a ridiculous offer that it won't be turned down. Like Laban can't say no to this offer. Well, it it worked. Laban jumps on the deal. Jacob gets to work. Verse 20, fast forwards seven years. Jacob does his end of keeps up his end of the bargain. He served, he paid his agreed upon debt. And we read that it seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her, which sounds really sweet. It's not, we'll get to that in a moment, it's not sweet. You can think, oh, marry a guy like that. No, we'll get to that a little bit later. It's really not that sweet. We get hints of selfishness really throughout this chapter. He has his eyes on the prize, he's heading for marriage, but at the end of the seven years, it's almost like Laban forgot. It's not in his mind, like, okay, time's up, here's Rachel, good job, Jacob. No, the narrator gives us clues in verse 21 uh, that, again, doesn't sound real romantic, the language of verse 21. Kind of a, a selfish demand, but it sets into motion the wedding. Laban gathers the family together, prepares a feast, as a custom of that day, and in verse 23, he prepares the ultimate switcheroo. Now, keep in mind the flow of the big story unfolding throughout the book of Genesis. 
Jacob is God's chosen heir to receive the blessing of Abraham. In the last chapter, chapter 28, verse 13, Jacob is guaranteed the promise of offspring that was given to Abraham. Jacob is about to get his wife. That will lead to offspring, children, promised offspring that will be more numerous than the dust on the earth promised descendants that will be a blessing to all nations. It's all coming together now, and here comes a huge curveball. Verse 23, but in the evening, he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob, and he went into her. Maybe your first question is, how would you not know? You were working for seven years, man. That's all you were thinking about. How could you possibly not know that this wasn't Rachel. I think there's an illusion here. Just like Isaac couldn't see when Jacob deceived him into giving him a blessing, Jacob couldn't see here. He couldn't see until the morning. Now, we don't know whether that was because she was veiled, or maybe it was dark, or seriously, maybe that he drank too much at the wedding feast. We don't know. Whatever was going on, he didn't see. I think that's actually an allusion back to his deception on his father, Isaac. Isaac couldn't see because he was blind. Here's Jacob, blinded by whatever, but couldn't see. But when he finally does see, in verse 25, he immediately confronts Laban with this familiar phrase we've seen throughout the book of Genesis. What is this you have done? Again, it's an allusion back. God said these words to Eve when she sinned against God. In Genesis chapter 12, Pharaoh said these words when Abraham deceived him. Chapter 26, Abimelech said these words as well when he was deceived by Isaac. A lot of deception going on in this book. And the question in verse 25, it's dripping with irony. Why then have you deceived me? The deceiver got deceived. Laban pulled a Jacob on Jacob. Now, Laban's response, it again reflects back on Jacob's deception. Verse 26, it is not so done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Might have even been a a poke there, Jacob. Yeah, Jacob, you guys might have done that where you're from and skipped over your brother Esau. We don't do that here. Almost like he's taking a, a poke at him. Jacob himself, right, put himself before the firstborn Esau, and he presumed upon doing the same here with Rachel. Now, to be sure, Laban, Jacob's seeking to break the custom of marrying off the oldest first. It doesn't justify Laban's deception. Laban's deception was was wrong. He should have never agreed to Jacob's proposal when it was made. But the downward spiral continues as Laban offers Rachel as a second wife to Jacob at the end of the marriage feast that week, if Jacob will serve another seven years. Laban was crafty and coming up with a plan that would benefit himself even more. And Jacob, feeling probably backed into a corner, he agrees. For 14 years, he serves Laban. And one commentary I I wrote this week noted that God brought the patriarch-to-be to Laban for discipline that would bring Jacob's deception before his eyes. It may have seemed like Jacob would get away with the deception of his father Isaac, but we read here the consequences for his sin, it followed him. 
This is one of many stories in the Bible, I think, where we see the truth that you will reap what you sow. Galatians chapter 6, verse 7, do not be deceived. God is not mocked for whatever one sows, that will he also reap. That speaks to eternity, I think, but I think it also speaks to time on this life, in this life on earth. Sin never brings gain. You never profit from sin. Sin may promise to bring joy and life. It never delivers that. It never has. It never will. It only brings pain. Now, Jacob, he went to, get, went to Laban to get a wife. He ends up with two wives and their two servants. And again, you may read this and think, well, what's going on here? I've mentioned at several points in our study through Genesis that polygamy is contrary to God's design and His plan for marriage. And while Moses, as he's telling the story, doesn't offer moral commentary on this in the moment, the details he does provide here helps us understand the damage that comes from living outside of God's design. We clearly see the damage that comes from these polygamous relationships. You won't find a single one of them in the book of Genesis or throughout the Old Testament where something good, good fruit comes from that. Here in this story, we see a picture of the damage of one wife being loved and the other being hated. We clearly see the bad fruit that comes from living outside of God's plan for marriage between one man and one woman. Now, you may have begun this chapter thinking this was going to be a love story, right? But by the time you get to the end, it's anything but a love story. It's terrible. It's dark. You know, make no mistake, this is not a romantic love story. So, so don't read this and think, wow, what a love story. Man, Jacob jumped in the water. He loved Rachel so much. He moved the stone for her all by himself. Look how he served her. He watered her whole flock. Uh, he, he gave her a kiss right away. He, he wasn't afraid to show emotion in front of her. He wept aloud. Man, they took her back to dad. They hit it off. Had a great time. Dad loved him, gave him a kiss too, welcomed him in. Things were going so great. He was willing to work seven years for her. It's so romantic. And it only seemed like a few days. What a love story, right? It's easy to kind of think that's what's building up here, that he was so madly in love with her that he gave himself to all of this. This is not a romantic love story. As you keep reading the storyline here, what stands out is not romance, but rejection. Jacob rejected Leah. That's an important point to get from this story. It's not about the romance. I think the detail we need to pick up on here, Jacob rejected Leah. You see down in verse 31, Leah was hated by Jacob. Jacob rejected Leah, but notice that God did not. Leah is God's chosen one to bear the seed of promise. We'll get to this more next week, Lord willing, but let's take a, a brief look now. Look down at verse 35. The Lord gave Leah a son. This is significant. She named him what? Judah one of the 12 tribes of Israel. Through the tribe of Judah came a royal line, King David, King Solomon, King Jesus came from the tribe of Judah. In this story, we see Leah playing a part. She was God's chosen one to bear the seed of promise, not Rachel. She was God's chosen one. Through her would come the Messiah. Through her would come the serpent crusher promised back in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. From the house of David, the tribe of Judah traced all the way back to Leah. Through Leah 
came the seed of promise. That's the way that God would fill the earth with descendants of Abraham was through Leah all the way down to Jesus. The plan to bless the nations through Abraham finally fulfilled in Jesus, his death, his resurrection. God was moving the story forward here in Genesis chapter 29. And for God's people today, this story in Genesis 29, filled with irony, twists and turns, it is critical to the story of the gospel. God chose Leah to bear the promise. Tells us God's sovereign choice in election will stand. His purposes will stand. And when reading the story, it may seem odd at first that God used Laban's act of deception to accomplish His will and His plan for redemption. But yet, even as we've noted before previously, back when we went through Genesis chapter 27 with Jacob's deception of Isaac, that God is always at work, sovereign over all of those circumstances and situations. Even when human deception is working for evil, God is at work advancing His plan for His glory and for the good of His people. God was at work the whole time in Genesis 29, bringing about His sovereign plan. We see again later on in Genesis when Jacob's son deceived their father and sell Joseph into slavery. They intended it for harm and to do evil, and God did it for good and saved them from famine using even that act of deception. I mentioned previously in our series in Genesis another occasion where human deception was used by God to move God's plan forward. I mean, not accepted by God, not commended by God, but God reigning sovereignly even over people acting in ways that are evil. One of the key places in the New Testament was when Jesus was betrayed by one of his disciples, Judas, in an act of deception, the kiss of betrayal. Judas kissed Jesus on the cheek, betraying Jesus, and the whole time, God was at work. In his worst moment, Judas actually doing the sweet bidding of the Lord. Judas was guilty of betraying Jesus, and yet God was at work using that act to deliver Jesus up to suffer and die on the cross. That's the reason that Jesus came. God sovereign over that act to accomplish the plan of redemption. You know, if you're here this morning, you're not a Christian, we're so glad that you've come. Uh, I hope you come back next week. We'd love to see you every single week here. Coming to church is a great place to learn more about who God is and what He's done in Jesus. And as Christians, we understand that all of the Bible, it moves the story forward to what Jesus has done. The Old Testament looking forward to what God was going to do in Jesus. God keeping His promises and sending Jesus. And the New Testament proclaiming that Jesus is the Son of God. And then after the first four Gospels, we kind of see explanations of the Gospel, teaching about the Gospel, unpacking the Gospel. And the Bible ends in the book of Revelation, the consummation, the completion of all things when Jesus returns. What you need to know about all these stories in the Bible, they point to God's faithfulness to His promise ultimately in Jesus. When we come together as Christians, we're reminded of God's faithfulness in Jesus. And the gospel simply tells us this. The beginning of the story of the book of Genesis, people sinned against God. Adam and Eve sinned against God, rebelling against Him. You and I are born sinful as a result of their act. Sin and death came to the world through what we see in Genesis chapter 2. And from Genesis 3 on, it's a story of redemption. Jesus Christ came to die on the cross, to pay the penalty 
for sins. He, he proved that his payment for sin was accepted by God by getting up from the dead three days later. He extends this new life, and that's the Christian message. It's called the gospel. That new life, forgiveness of sins, being made right with God is available right now to anyone who would repent of their sin and put their faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. All the history and the stories we see in Genesis, real stories, real history, it all happened just like we see printed in the book of Genesis, and it all pointed forward to Jesus. It all pointed forward to God keeping His promises in Jesus. That's why we sang this morning, nothing but the blood of Jesus. You see, we would confess this morning we're more like Jacob. Those who've received grace and kindness, God's been so patient with us. We don't hold up our own spiritual resumes. As Christians, we hold up Jesus Christ. The blood of the Lamb saved our souls. That's our testimony. It's one of grace and forgiveness, and we'd love for that to be your testimony today. If you've come and don't know Jesus, don't leave here without talking to someone. Talk to someone around you who brought you. Talk to one of our members. I'll be down here. We'll have other pastors at the door afterwards. It's the most important thing you could talk about today, what it would look like to get right with God by putting your faith in Jesus. Well, as we read through the book of Genesis, the story of the patriarchs of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, we see their faith. We've noted time and time again, we see their failures. We see their flaws. We see deception. We see evil. And you might wonder why. Why are we seeing all of this? Well, for one, Moses is narrating the way it actually happened. He's not cleaning up the stories. He's not making Jacob's line, kind of Jacob's life kind of line up with what we later see in the Mosaic Law. He's just presenting what is happening. Moral flaws, failures, not trusting God. But the whole time, he's presenting not moral lessons in the book of Genesis. The main lesson in the book of Genesis is that all of this is entirely of God's grace. Through stories of faith and through stories of failure of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, we see highlighted in the book of Genesis God's grace. What stands out time and time again is that God's election of the patriarchs of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is entirely a work of His grace. Genesis is God's story. It's a story of His faithfulness to keep His promises, His faithfulness to accomplish His plans. Nothing can stop His plans. God's grace is magnified throughout the book of Genesis. Nothing can get in the way of His purposes, not even the folly and failure of His people. God is always at work. Our confidence as Christians, which also brings us humility, God will see to it that His promises will come to pass. Brother and sister in the Lord, meditate on the promises of God this week and find confidence and find humility. Confidence that God is always at work. And in humility, that God is just so gracious and kind to us. He doesn't need us to accomplish His plans, but He graciously chooses to use us. The people of God and Jesus Christ, remember this truth of God's providence today, that God is good, God is in control, His plans cannot fail. I'll leave you with the words of Charles Spurgeon, who spoke about our purposes and plans compared to God's purposes. He said, purposes, plans, and achievements of men may all disappear like a cloud upon the mountain's summit. But like the mountain itself, the things which are of God shall stand fast forever and ever.
Let's bow and pray.